0: The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you. Would you remain standing as we just um, dedicate this time in the Lord to prayer? Heavenly Father, we um, are so thankful that you are so kind to us. You are so, so kind to us. And Lord, more now than ever, we need to be reminded of the resurrection. We need, we need another word. We death cannot be the final word. And you've given it to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would soften our hearts this morning. That you would just make us real tender. And you'd help us to give our attention to your word. These ancient, mysterious, beautiful words. Would you just bless this time? And we believe, Lord, but help our unbelief and um, draw us close to you. We pray this all in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's um, Ronnie, I'm senior pastor here at Denver Presbyterian Church. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, um, it's a real honor to share this day with you. Um, for this Easter season, I just want to spend some time contemplating the resurrection. You know, in the New Testament, there's no longer discussion on this topic than the Apostle Paul's words that we just heard in 1 Corinthians 15, Um, His description is actually longer than the passage we just heard, so we're just going to look at that part which we had read for us this morning. Paul's uh, first letter to these young Christians, brand new converts in Corinth, um, this letter is, is historically just really very interesting. I don't know what you know about this ancient city, but it was a port city, it was big multi-ethnic, affluent. Uh, think of it like New York or L.A. or London or Paris or something like that. And it's a city that was formed and shaped by the paganism of its day. Uh, it was not shaped by a Hebrew religion. And I mention this because Paul's reflections on this resurrection are profound and thoughtful. Um, Paul's not just talking about the resurrection of Jesus But like the resurrection of everyone who believes and is united to him in faith. Now, even as I say that word, resurrection, even as it leaves my mouth, like I know it can sound funny. We are all modern people here, Uh, we took our science classes. Uh, We need to at least be open to the question what if it's not true? And even if it is, who cares? Several years ago, a young woman wrote a blog post that really caught my attention. She had grown up um, in Hinduism, and then she began to explore, and she moved to the Baha'i faith, and then ultimately she converted and became a Christian. And she gives this like terrific perspective on what it's like to explore Christianity. There's a candor and an honesty in her words. This is what she wrote. Listen carefully. She says, Christians claimed that Jesus was God, was the son of God, and all this stuff about a trinity, which I really had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that, I di- not that I didn't believe Jesus could rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have. I assumed these were all myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale, except maybe metaphorical spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event should have on me. No Christian had ever explained that to me. They would just say crazy stuff like, I have been washed in the blood of the lamb, and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? And then they paint these portraits of hell, and it all made zero sense to me, just as though someone would have said, my red balloon popped, and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't this all make you want to buy a new Nissan? I am not exaggerating, she says. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian. No real meaningful sense anyway. You just have no idea what they're excited about. So Jesus rose from the dead. Big whoop. So what? Good for him. But really, so what? That candor. Isn't that great? I wonder if there's someone here today who can relate to that blog post. Maybe you stepped away from Christianity years ago and uh, you find yourself here this morning, or maybe you're just hearing this all for the very first time. And however it is that you find yourself in this building, in this church on this day, I'm just really glad that you're here. I don't want to uh, be naive to how odd all of this must be The liturgy, the songs, there's more exclamation points in the liturgy than ever. We have this surprising energy. The pastor's wearing a clerical collar. It must be a big day. We're saying things like, he's risen. He's risen indeed. And all of our songs are about resurrection. And you're here, and you're slightly curious You can tell that this resurrection is a big deal, but frankly, you just don't get it. You don't understand why. And what I really hope is that this passage, these ancient words um, in this ancient letter can kind of humanize the energy behind why the church makes this day such a big deal So the original audience, it's worth mentioning, those who originally received that letter that Paul wrote, they would have been confused as well. Now, they have uh, ideas that were different than our modern ideas, but these ancient pagans didn't even think that resurrection was desirable. Saying that Jesus resurrected and that we're going to be resurrected too, that would have made zero sense. And they didn't even know if they wanted that. And so in chapter 15, this passage that we had read for us, it starts to feel a little bit different if you were to read the whole letter. Um, You know, I really enjoy these Marvel movies like on the Disney Plus and so forth. And I have like a special place in my heart for She-Hulk, big, green, great hair, She-Hulk. One of the things that's interesting about her is that she can break the fourth wall you know what that means? It's where the actor in the show can look straight at the camera and talk to the audience. Like you're part of this dialogue with her. She, of course, wasn't the first to do this. There's the irreverent Deadpool. Um, there's the, my, my favorite sitcom of all time, The Office, does that. And honestly, none of that is new. If you are my age, uh, you'll remember Ferris Bueller. Uh, At any given moment, the action would stop. He'd look right at the camera and just talk to us, the viewer. It was great. I say this because it feels like the Apostle Paul in chapter 15 is doing that. It's like this resurrection talk is so beyond the pale of believability. And so what he does is he looks right at the camera and he begins to employ a different kind of language to help us understand why? But why this is so amazing? And so if you, um, if you feel like that blog writer this morning, a little bit confused, uh, maybe a little bit skeptical, I hear you. I do. It's totally understandable. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul is going to look right at the camera and talk to us. He's going to talk to us, and he's going to use different language uh, than normal, And let's see if uh, this different language, he can't help us uh, to resonate with the profound truths of this resurrection. So uh, for you note takers, and I know there's six of you, we're going to look at this passage in three ways. First, we're going to look at the language of logic, verses 16 through 19. The language of metaphor, verses 20 through 23. And then the language of war, verses 24 through 26. Let's begin first with the the language of logic. Again, I don't know um, how much Bible history uh, you know, but um, before the apostle Paul was Paul, he grew up using the name Saul. Uh, Saul is a very Jewish name. Saul grew up in the city called Tarsus. Uh, This city's not really noteworthy to modern people, but for its time, it would have been like Cambridge or Oxford Or something that is um, academically prestigious like that. Uh, It was, Tarsus was uh, like the front leading edge of the sword for higher learning. And uh, the apostle Paul grew up there, studied there, and he was a world-class thinker for his time. Even people uh, who are not into Christianity, but who study the ancient corpus, they will concede that when you encounter the writings of Paul, he seems to be in a class of his own. Um, when guys like me who go to seminary, we begin to learn ancient Greek. And when you first start learning uh, Greek, uh, you start reading uh, in your New Testament like the disciple John, uh, maybe his gospel or his letters, because quite frankly, when you read John, it's pretty easy to read. He, it's, it's simple. John was not particularly educated. But then once you get good enough at your Greek, then you can start to read Paul because you can tell that his prose is like very sophisticated. Every Greek student can recognize this immediately when you open up your Greek New Testament. And in addition to his sophisticated discourse and writings, you can tell that Paul was also trained in formal logic. Beginning in verse 16, he begins with this series of three if-then statements. Look there in your Bibles or in your uh, worship guide. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me see if I can't summarize that using our own language, his his sort of if-then statements. If dead people stay dead, then Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, then Jesus and this whole thing is a hoax. And if Jesus is a hoax and we have put all our trust in him and in this life only, then we are worse than dummies. Now, I want you to, like, get your brain around just how crazy this logic exercise is for the Apostle Paul. Because you will not see anything like this in any other religious book. But Paul seriously wants you to entertain this question. What if we are wrong? See, Paul is turning to the camera and asking, have you ever thought about the fact that this might be a hoax? And he does so with candor. And this is all in the Bible. Dead people stay dead. Then the main protagonist of all of history is also dead. And if that guy is dead, then this is all a ruse. And we are sincerely pitiable more than any other people, right? Because eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. What we really should have been doing this entire time is thinking about ourselves and hedging our bets. But as it were, there we are, Christians, just sacrificing our lives for other people, giving away our money, considering other people's interests as more important than our own, not indulging in this life, but giving it away, hop, dying for other people, falsely believing that there, there is this better life on the other side. That's why we're sacrificing today. And if it's all a ruse, what a shame and a pity. And so Paul uses this language of logic to kind of help us feel the stakes. Now, I know I haven't exactly explained the relevance of the resurrection yet, but you can begin to see what's happening here. The resurrection is not just this one aspect of Christianity. Everything rides on this one thing So at a very minimum, knowing that that's what we all believe, you could at least begin to understand why on this day we'd begin to exude a certain joy and energy because the resurrection's at the the very core of our faith. Now at this point in his letter, Paul helps us to feel the stakes with the language of logic. But now he's starting to stare. He's still staring at the camera and talking to us. And now he's going to use the language of metaphor. This is our second point, the language of metaphor. Now, this is brilliant. This is really brilliant. Like, if we want to say something really true and, like, really meaningful, technical, logical language doesn't quite fit the occasion, right? I mean, if I want my wife um, to experience the truth of my love for her? I don't say, Amanda, when I am in your vicinity, I have massive and increased dopamine production in the hypothalamus section of my brain, right? Weird. To speak in that way, you know, in some ways, describes the phenomena of love in a less true way, doesn't it? So in order to communicate something really true, I need metaphorical language, don't I? Amanda, as the waves on the San Juan beaches are never ending, so is my love for you, infinite and eternal. It's okay. I'm getting better. It's closer. It's getting closer, right? Language of metaphor moves us closer to the reality of truth, right? You see how that works? Well, look at verse 20. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now notice there in that one verse there are these two metaphors, first fruits and those those who have fallen in a, fall asleep. So what are these metaphors and how are they functioning in our hearts? First, the first fruits. Uh, this metaphor is interesting. It's odd actually that Paul uh, that he's using, because Paul, remember, is writing to people who come from an urban pagan culture, but he's using rural Jewish metaphors here. Right, you can take the boy out of Israel, but you can't take Israel out of the boy, kind of thing. That's what's going on here. So, first fruits is an image uh, taken from a time when the Israelites, who had been enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt, they'd come out, they'd crossed through the Red Sea, they've crossed over the Jordan River, and they became, for their very first time in the history as a people, landowners. And they came into a land and they received it as inheritance. From God himself. And so they started growing food. And when they received that very first harvest of wheat, or that first bushel of dates, or that first cluster of grapes, that very first harvest was considered a first fruits. The first fruits were so significant because it made invisible things visible. It made the promises of God visible. And let me explain. So like way back in the Old Testament, well before Moses, you had this guy named Abram. Later, he would change his name to Abraham. When God first goes to Abraham, there is no Jewish people. There is no Hebrew nation. But God goes to him and says, I am going to make you uh, I am going to make you a great nation, give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I am going to give you your very own land. Now, this is, a, you know, this is a very nice promise, but Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are very old people and can't have children. So how in the world do we know that this is going to happen? Now, fast forward into history the descendants of abraham first come into the promised land and that first harvest comes and that harvest of wheat that bushel of dates that first cluster of grapes and when they lay their eyes on this first fruits certainty fills their hearts when god promises me something it's real when you look, when your eyes look upon those first fruits, you're seeing invisible promises visible. You know, when I was in college um, at that very esteemed institution just south of here, Air Force Academy, what up? Um, they made they literally made the entire cadet wing uh, read this book by Stephen Covey called uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's what he's famous for. In 2012, Stephen Covey passed away, and his daughter, Cynthia, told this most beautiful story. Uh, when she was 12 years old, um, her dad, Stephen, was speaking at a conference in San Francisco, and she didn't always get to travel with her dad, but on this trip, she did. And so she sat in the very back uh, while her dad did his thing and gave his presentation. Now, the two of them had agreed, and they'd actually been planning four months that after he did his lecture, his teaching, and before he got mobbed by the crowds, that he was going to find her in the back, quietly slip out, hop on a trolley, go to Chinatown, eat Chinese food, because that was their favorite. They were going to buy a souvenir, walk around town, catch a movie, take a cab back to the hotel, uh, put on their bathing suits for a little bit of night swimming, then they're going to order room service, hot fudge Sunday, and end the night watching late-night TV together. And they, like, went through this very detailed plan, highly rehearsed, and highly anticipated. So the time comes. They go to San Francisco. Stephen Covey uh, speaks, does his thing, meets her in the back. They slip out quietly, head to the trolley. At that moment... He bumps into one of his old college friends, and they had worked together before, but they hadn't seen each other for a long time. They're talking. This guy mentions that their company's going to start doing work with his company. He's really excited about it. He's really excited about this reunion that they're having. And he says, listen, Lois and I are about to get this amazing seafood dinner at Fisherman's Wharf. You and your daughter, Cynthia, have to come with us. We would love to host you and to treat you tonight, our treat. And Cynthia hears her dad say, Bob, it's so great to see you, and Fisherman's Wharf sounds great. And 12-year-old Cynthia, right at that moment, she hears those words, and her heart just sank. But she didn't let her dad finish. Stephen continues, but we can't do it tonight because Cynthia and I have a big date, right? And he grabs her hand, looks at her eyes, and winks at her. And they make a beeline for the trolley and execute this highly rehearsed plan that ends with a hot fudge Sunday and late-night TV. And so in this interview in 2012, because she had recently lost him, she thinks back on what he did that night. And, he sa- and, she, and, and she says that it bonded her heart to her father. In the interview, she says, I knew... I knew I was the most important thing to him. Now listen to me carefully. When an Israelite would hold up that first harvest of wheat, that first bushel of dates, that first cluster of grapes, they could see God's promises And it was as if God was grabbing them by the hands, looking at them and winking at them. And it bonded their hearts to their Father in heaven. Now keep following me on this metaphor of first fruits. Because it doesn't only make the promise visible, but it also makes their unseen future visible. Their unseen future visible. And what do I mean by that? When an Israelite would um, present their first fruits at the temple, and when they held that harvest of wheat, of dates, of grapes, they're celebrating God, right? Because he's, he's, he gives us exceedingly more than what we deserve. That, that, first, that first harvest, it represents a whole bunch more. That first harvest represents a whole bunch more unseen that's coming See, that first fruit stood in for the rest of the crop. The first fruits represents the whole thing, you see. Now listen, because this is why I'm telling you this. When Jesus rises bodily, you know, like that lady says in the blog, good for him, but so what? And that's the point. See, that's the point. That gives us a peek into, even now the second metaphor that Paul uses, of those who had fallen asleep. Sleep becomes a metaphor for Christians because though someone, right, think about it, loses consciousness and falls asleep, they will indeed wake up with a rejuvenation and a newness of life and of strength. Sleep is a metaphor of death. It does not last forever because of the resurrection. That's why Paul's using this language. That's why Paul says, look there in verses 21 through 23. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in the first man, so also Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those, all those who belong to Christ. See, the resurrection of Christ is not just good for Jesus. He represents The whole. He is simply the first of all those others who simply believe in Him and are joined to Him in faith. The one represents the whole. So, in Jesus, as our first fruits, you can see your future. Like if you're discouraged, if you feel aimless, if you feel like the weight of like cosmic. Purple, purposelessness? Like, what, what, what does anything even matter, the work that I do? What, if it, what does any of this even matter if the sun is gonna go cold? The future is now breaking in to encourage you at this exact moment. Let me see if I can't help you understand this. There's this movie on Netflix. It's um, with Ryan Reynolds. It's called The Adam Project. It's this comedy action film film about this fighter pilot. Uh, his name is Walker Scoble. He's from the future, but he goes back in time, and he encounters his younger self and his mom, actually. And uh, just a year earlier, the young 12-year-old Walker and his mother, they had lost, you know, her husband and or his father. And this young kid, 12 years old, understandably, he's having a really hard time coping it's very disorienting to lose a parent, of course, and his mother. She's not faring much better. She's struggling too, right? And we, right? We have all imagined what it would be like if we could go back in time and like see our younger selves. Like, what would you say to your younger self? How would you encourage your younger self who might be like languishing a little bit? What would you say? So in this movie, we see these scenes of Walker. The older walker talking to the younger walker and encouraging him. And the older walker is like speaking to his mother, even. And she's having a hard time, right? She's afraid that she's losing her son. This kid's starting to rebel, right? Aimless, without a dad. So there's this one scene with Jennifer Garner. She's the mother. She's at the bar at this particularly hard day with her son, And she's, like, lamenting, like, with the bartender. You know how bartenders play the role of therapists sometimes? So, like, she's lamenting to the bartender, and she wonders aloud. She says, I wish I knew what I was doing wrong, you know. And so the older walker, he's also at this bar, and he blurts out, you're not doing anything wrong. And the two laugh because it's awkward that he's eavesdropping for a second, But the older walker says to his mom, who doesn't realize who this strangely familiar man is, he says, but I'll tell you this, boys always come back for their mamas. And Jennifer Garner, right, she's this amazing actress, you can see this, like, surge of encouragement, desperately wanting those words to be true, and they are true, because there he is. He's come back for his mama. The Apostle Paul, you guys, he's looking, he's looking at you through the camera. And when he calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's allowing you to see your future so that you can be encouraged by a future reality. It's like your future is breaking into the presence so that you can get a glimpse of it. And you're supposed to get this surge of encouragement, even as you desperately want those words to be true. Like you want Paul to be right about this. And here's the deal: he is. The first fruits represents the whole. Can you see your future? What is your future? Like if you trust in Jesus, what is your future? And not yours only. What is is the future of the whole world? If the Apostle Paul is right, what is the future that we are all heading to? And this is where the Apostle Paul shifts his language one more time. So first he used the language of logic. Then he uses the language of metaphor. And here's our third point. Now the language of war. Now, I know that the language of war does not immediately sound encouraging or positive. But let me tell you why people like us desperately need this. And we need it bad. If you sit long enough, if you sit still long enough, like, you'll find that like life comes at you so fast. You know what happened at Denver High School a couple weeks ago? where what happened at Nashville, at Covenant Press, was like this horrific fast-forwarding of the hellish reality of death. And a language of war is strange, but it can be beautiful in really scandalous ways because it it makes the unthinkable realities of death seem... As if the leverage that they hold over us in this life, not it, it makes them seem like they will not last forever. The older I get, the more of life that slips past me. The more life that slips past the people I love and the people around me. The more I see people that I care about shrinking into their own mortality and slipping away into it, and the more goodbyes that I have to say. And like when you see like the footage of Nashville, and it's not just like grown-ups, it's like kids too, or when you walk through um, a cancer floor, or hospice care, Or like when little newborn babies are born with undetected malformations in their heart and they live no longer than just a few breaths in their mama's arms. Or when you get the phone call that your friend's college-aged daughter who just left her house from a family dinner gets hit by a drunk driver half a mile from their driveway and dies instantly. Or even just like, even just like the, the, a painful divorce that's like so disorienting. Or just like this, even like addiction that just wrecks a family. And like all of this, like I know you feel this, like all of this is just too much. And, and, and what is there to say about this? Yeah, don't worry, man, the sun's going to go cold one day. Or do we just ignore it and pretend as if death is not real, as if, and as we just try to shave off a few years of our appearance with anti-aging cream? Do we say things like, I don't know, things that don't even mean anything at all? Like, well, heaven just has another angel. Or, well, she's just smiling down at you from above. Now, please understand me. I know that we say these things because we often just don't know what to say. And I know that when we say these things that we really care for these people very, very much. My point here is not to make us feel guilty or question the quality of grief. I'm simply asking, is there something more, like something more that can be said And this is where the language of war that the Apostle Paul uses is so, so meaningful for people like us who are just trying to get along in this life that is harsh. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul is saying, not that, just, that God's just coming to show death who the alpha male is or to give death a black eye. Paul is saying that he came to destroy sin and death. And he uses that word destroy twice. God is making war on death. Death is being put to death. Jesus makes war on death through his own death and then his resurrection. And, and this, this wasn't just some like unavoidable stop. Jesus did not just, like, close his eyes, hold his breath, and cross his fingers. Jesus did not just, he wasn't just hoping that he would get to somewhere better. And, and like, listen, like, you need to hear this, like, again and again. Death was, was, the, was the stop that Jesus was intending to make all along. Like, it was the purpose of his whole life. It was like his destination. He made the descent because he had business to do with death. And only one of them was going to come out alive. You know, during, uh, during the lockdown of COVID in 2020, I finally had read, I just decided I'm going to pound out all seven Harry Potter books. My kids had read them several times. I thought it was time that I joined them. And the payout came in book seven, the final book. There's this powerful and moving scene when Harry and Hermione go to this village called Godric's Hollow. And this village has a lot of meaning for a lot of reasons. It's named after uh, this man, Godric Gryffindor, um, and that's the house that Harry belongs to. Uh, This is where Dumbledore's family is buried. He's actually the headmaster of all of Hogwarts, But the biggest significance and the reason why the scene is like so precious and so moving is that Godric's Hollow is the town where Harry's parents are buried. And he's never been there before. So the snow is falling and they go to the churchyard and they start looking through headstones. And Hermione says, Harry, I found them. And he walks over and he sees this white marble headstone. And it's one of those headstones that's big enough, and it's for two places, right? Two spaces. And, and it says James Potter and Lily Potter. Like Easter Lily, right? And Lily Potter. And they were both born in 1960. And of course, they, if you know the story, they both died on the exact same day in 1981. They were 20 one-year-old kids when Harry was orphaned. And the epitaph under James and Lily's names reads like this. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. J.K. Rowling took that epitaph from our passage this morning. And why is it so moving? And why is that so powerful? Because that story is pointing to something that happened. Jesus comes out of death alive. Like he defeats death. He makes death untrue. And when we look at this obscenity of death, like something more has to be said about this. And it's this, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's answer to this obscenity of death. And that's why this language of war, of conquering death, is profoundly hopeful for people like us, strugglers. And so Paul ends this passage with this picture of Christus Victor, of Jesus handing the kingdom over to his father, It's this inverse of a world that has gone bad, a world that was corroded and deconstructed by death. It's a world that was created for harmony and peace and beauty and goodness. This is a picture of the world restored by the one who would descend to the grave even to make everything new through the resurrection. Jesus comes to people like you and me with that gracious invitation to repent of our sins. Really, and it's to repent of our indifference towards God and to join the joy and to be made new. So the Bible's trying to get our attention by staring through the camera and giving us language of logic and metaphor and of war. And when you understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about, you realize at its very heart, it's just an invitation. It's an invitation to take the yoke of Jesus, which is easy and light. It's an offer of rest. It's an offer of hope. It's an offer to dry up tears. It's an offer to give us meaning. It's an offer of resurrection, the one for the whole. Happy Easter, church. Amen.